Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 37, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, January the 20th, 2021. 22, sorry. <clears throat> You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look at the uh, prophetic words of um, Isaiah given regarding the Messiah, uh, the Messianic prophecies that, that apply to Jesus. Um, we're also looking at Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 33, and then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. So remember, the first verse we're going to read today was actually also the last verse we read yesterday in the Isaiah prophecy. And he's speaking, remember, to Cyrus, the king of Persia, the one who will allow and fund the people of Israel to go back to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and also to rebuild the temple. And, and he's reminding Cyrus that, that it's he, the Lord, who really enables all this and who should get all the credit for this. He's reminding Cyrus, but he's also reminding the people, because it would certainly be a temptation to make more of Cyrus than he deserves. What they needed to observe was the Lord's spirit working through this Persian king to enable their salvation. God can use anybody he likes to accomplish his purposes. And as I said yesterday, you can be either a willing participant or an unwilling participant. It goes better if you're a willing participant and <laughs> that you recognize him as the, the true benefactor. So he says, I'm the Lord, there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none besides me. I'm not going to share my glory with you. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. So nothing comes about without me blessing it or me cursing it. So whichever way it goes, it's me, not you. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. And what he means by creating it are all the things that he mentions. Shower, O heavens, let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. And so it, it's all God's work beginning to end. And one of the things that, that I've said multiple times about that parable from yesterday in the in the gospel about Jesus speaking about the sower who sows seed on different kinds of soil is is that ultimately even then the ground has to be prepared to receive it so there's work to be done and we cooperate with God in working the soil of our lives to make it receptive and fruitful so again willing or unwilling uh Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? And it's God saying, don't question 
my ways of accomplishing things just submit to the process. And, and again, willing or unwilling. And so he said, it's foolish for human beings to argue with me over what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. Because, well, I'm God and you're not. I've created you as well. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They'll plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other. No God besides him. And so this is, again, it's, it's a word about Cyrus, the king, but ultimately it's about the Messiah, the one who will bring about true salvation, true redemption, and true deliverance. But in the short term, it applies to Cyrus. Because it applies to him as, I will bless you, so long as you cooperate with my agenda. And the nations will come to you and believe that you are somebody, not because of you, but because of God. Surely God is in you. There's no other no other God besides him. This, like I said, in the short term, the prophecy applies to Cyrus, the Persian king, who will, who will uh, enable and finance, in every way enable, the return to and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. In the longer term, it applies to the Messiah, the one who has committed himself to the way of the Lord, the one who has committed himself entirely to that. And because of that, then the nations will stream to him because they recognize God in him. Truly, you're a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The maker of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And we are ultimately the Israel to whom Isaiah speaks. Like I said, there's, there's two short-term horizons to this uh, prophecy, but then there's a longer-term horizon to it as well. And that longer-term horizon incorporates us into the Israel of God. In Mark's gospel, Jesus continues with parables here. He said to them, is a lamp brought to be put in brought in to be put under a blanket or under a bed or not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest not is any nor is anything secret except to to come to light if anyone has ears ears let him hear so in other words Jesus is coming to shine the light and that light can't be hidden and when that light comes it reveals it makes truth manifest. And it makes two kinds of truth manifest. It makes roaches scatter, right? So so it they don't there's some who don't like the light because they don't like to have their evil deeds exposed. And then there are those who will come to the light because it exposes the truth about Jesus and more about God himself. Jesus is the lamp in, in the um, heavenly Jerusalem, in, in the eternal Jerusalem, he is the lamp through which the light of God shines and is distilled and made known. And he said to them then, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It'll be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, 
more will be given, and from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And, and that depends. It's, it's not God's wanting to reward the rich. What he's saying is, is that take attention to what you hear and the measure you use. So how do we live? Are we living according to God's word? Are we according, living according to the way God wants us to live? Or are we living in a different way? And that, he says, will make all the difference in the world. And he said, the kingdom of God as as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He doesn't understand the scientific process behind it, but he does know that it's got to be watered and all these other things have to happen, but he can't describe the actual workings, maybe, of all that stuff. He's, he's sowing seed. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So he does the things that are up to him to do. He puts the seed in the ground, and then he recognizes when it's time to do the harvest, and he goes about the work of harvesting. But he also allows the, the process that he might not understand to play itself out. He does everything he can to enhance it and to make it as good a harvest as possible, but ultimately he's not in control. There's so many factors that are outside of his control that all he can do is trust. And then he said, the man, um, with that, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable should we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in the shade. Don't worry about the outcome. Don't, don't look and say, I have insufficient material to produce anything. No. He says, look, treat it this way. The kingdom of God is a miracle and a mystery. And so just sow the seed and then trust God for the results. Do the work that you've been given to do. Sow that seed and then trust God for the results, and he will do abundantly more than you can ask or imagine, as Paul said in the message in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. And that's exactly what we're what he's trying to say here is is that it starts small and then grows incredibly large. This is exactly what's happened in history with the church. And so our job today is to continue to sow the seed. And too often we've gotten distracted from the work of sowing the seed. Even the church has gotten distracted from the work of sowing the seed, and we've immersed ourselves in so many other things. And and in doing so, what we've done is we've adulterated the gospel, and we've treated it as though it's a secondary issue, that that these other things are really our primary issues. Sowing the seed is a secondary issue, and Jesus tells too many parables about sowing the seed for us to ever be confused about the primary work of the church and of Christians. So, the, while I might have something that's attributed to St. Francis used to be on my desk, I don't see it now. We've, we've moved things around a good bit lately, and so we've had to. Um, so, because when Will came home, we had to have a place for him, and that had to be on the ground floor and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so there was a thing that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's necessary. That's a period, end of sentence thing, is, is that, that we have to do everything intentionally, and we have to let people know we're doing it intentionally. We have to let them know the reason we're doing what we do. It's important that we preach the gospel in words. People can't see Jesus just because I do things. They might ask me ultimately, but we shouldn't wait for that. 
the most important thing we should do is tell them about Jesus, tell them the gospel, because that's eternal. I can go out and do all kinds of good things for people, but ultimately I'm just doing good things for people. If I'm not preaching the gospel in the middle of that, if I'm not telling them about Jesus, if I'm not telling them about he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to eternal life, then I'm really only doing something that's ultimately of no particular significance if it's not paired with the gospel. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And that kind of goes back to this, truly you're a God who hides himself. And it, it's he hides himself, but not so that he cannot be found by those who search. And that's the important thing, that we as Christians need to be constantly searching and saying, God, what are you doing? Where do I see you in this, in what's going on in my life, in what's going on in my friend's life, in what's going on in the lives of those around me, but, and then larger, what's going on in the world? Where do I see this? Where do I see you? Because if I see you there, then I'm going to join you there. Paul says in Ephesians, look carefully then how you walk. It's important that you look carefully how you walk. Pay attention. Do things deliberately. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Well, if it was true in Paul's day, it's no less true today. We have we might have gone through uh, the Renaissance and we might have passed through the Enlightenment and, and come to the belief that, that things are getting better, but no, things fly apart. They do. We come up with worldly wisdom that, that hasn't made the world better. And the reality of that, if, if anybody could learn anything from the 20th century, it's that our knowledge hasn't made us wise, it's made us murder in way too many instances, not just the Nazis, but also what happened in China, what happened in Ukraine, what happened in um, Azerbaijan, what happened in uh, Russia, what's happened in all kinds of places where we've come up with new systems, and then those systems become totalitarian repression, and ultimately that means dissenters have to be, well, exterminated is the nicest word you can possibly use for that. And and that's the problem. The further that we've gone away from God's Word as an organizing principle, the more we've had to enforce our wisdom at the wrong end of a gun. And so it, it's important. The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit— addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Rejoice again. And, and again, I say rejoice, Paul says. And, and it's important that we keep our eyes fixed on him and our hearts fixed on him. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's important that we constantly give thanks it's, if I could change my life in any one way, if I could change your life in any one way, it would be to say, let me be more thankful to you. Because it's the thing that keeps us more than anything else fixed and focused on Him. It keeps us from ascribing too much 
to worldly leaders. It ascribes us from thinking too much and ascribing too much to those who do us good. No, ultimately, everything has to go back to him. And if everything go back, goes back to him, then I'm submitted to him. And I recognize that it's only from his hand that I have anything at all. And then I can be grateful for everything. Because first I realize I don't deserve anything. I deserve death because of my sin. And then he goes on to say the stuff that's controversial in our day. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We don't like that idea because we, we believe in some weird version of feminism. This is one of those things that, that I think becomes uh, part of that worldly wisdom. There, there's something absolutely true that, that there's a reaction against within feminism, right? So if this headship has been exercised badly, then there's a desire, because it's been exercised badly and wrongly, to escape that. But the problem was that what what should happen is men should repent. So when Paul gives this, then he's also, he's not just saying that to them. He says, for the husband is head of the wife, even as, this is important, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to your husbands. And what's happened is, is, is that way too many men stopped reading there. And they didn't even pay attention to the part is even as Christ is head of the church. He's to be a Christ figure in that way that he loves her enough to lay down his life for. Husbands, this is the important part, right? I mean, those two things can't be separated from one another, the instructions to wives and the instructions to husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how much he loved her. He was willing to to lay down his life for those who killed him because he loved them so much. And he knew that that would be the only way people would change. He, he did that, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. He saw what she could be, but only could be so long as he loved her so much that he was willing to lay down his life for her. And that changed her into the ability to become who she might be, to stop living in darkness and fear and dread, and then ultimately to live in the light and to love her husband so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, what she could be. He died for what we might be, but only through his death without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He loved her more than he loved his life. And that's the way we as husbands are intended to love our wives. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body, it's a reflection of him. The church is a reflection of him, and he wants the church to be beautiful and glorious in order to display his beauty and his glory. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The purpose of leaving the father and mother is, is to bring about this new and glorious thing, and then the cycle will repeat itself. It's not to say there's a problem with the old, but it's to embrace the new in the same way that Adam reacted when he first saw Eve. 
at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He was delighted in her in such a way that he didn't hate his mother and father because he didn't have one, but the, he, he was delighted in her and what his desire was to be one with her. And, and that's the important thing and the way we should understand marriage and our roles in marriage. The mystery is profound, he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In other words, it, it, what I'm telling you is it refers to Christ in the church, but, but what I'm also telling you is it does have that personal application to it. And so whenever I do a, a wedding, I always challenge the couple in such a way as to let their marriage reveal Christ in them. Let it be a witness, the marriage itself be a witness to Christ in them. And it's important that we do that because everything, including our marriages, need to redound to the glory of God in order that he might be made known.